Hello, I'm Richard Edgar, Fidelity's Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined in our London studio by Fidelity's Chief Investment Officer, Andrew McCaffrey. Welcome to you, Andrew. Thank you very much, Richard. Good to be here. Good. Now, we catch up every month for this podcast, and if I scroll back through our episode feed, it feels like almost every month there's been a new crisis to deal with. And I've got a list here, and it's pretty bracing, so hold on to your seats. We've had SVB, Credit Suisse, and the banking crisis, and as we record this, First Republic is in trouble. Sticky inflation, the consequences of higher interest rates, um, the FTX collapse, and the shattering of some people's faith in digital assets, a near collapse of UK pension funds after the budget that was and then wasn't, uh, throughout all of that, uh, the war in Ukraine, not to mention that global pandemic, which may feel like a bit of a, a distant memory when you think about all the other things I've just listed. But in some parts of the world, like China, it's much more recent than that. Have I missed any, Andrew? I think that's pretty comprehensive. Pretty comprehensive, yeah. yeah. Well, today, why don't we put all that to one side and catch up on the long-term trends that are keeping you occupied? And the first one that I want to ask you about is decarbonisation. Now, I know it's something that's coming up in conversations um, with clients that you're talking to. So is there any extent to which net zero has fallen out of focus whilst all those other crises that I've gone through were grabbing the headlines? So I think it's a very good question because uh, you could argue that in some parts of the, the world it's taken uh, a different turn. Um, and I think you know, the, the US is a good example where obviously the Inflation Reduction Act was really very much to promote um, the net zero world and to think about decarbonisation and everything that's required that was really you know, very climate uh, orientated. But it obviously was also a very nationalistic piece of uh, legislation to draw activity and development back into the US that had been occurring outside. The challenge is within the US, there's a very different political uh, framework from what we're seeing in many other countries where it's more aligned um, and behind what they're trying to achieve at policy level. In the US, there's obviously very mixed views that go across state. Just, just on that, though, because you're right, it's a political environment, which is, that's what we're all talking about. Um, but is that affecting actual flows beyond the politically motivated ones, like certain states deciding that they're going to withdraw their uh, investments with some asset managers? So at a global level, I don't believe that it is having um, a significant negative impact and negative really being about you know, the amount of uh, capital focus and policy uh, um, time that has been uh, uh, both spent and therefore developing around this, uh, this area. But I do think it's very important that it is raising that the fact that there are you know, different camps and that does have some level of effect, as we've seen in terms of you know, those states and how it impacts on to us as an asset management community um, and the way that it's perceived as to the approach um, to, to this area and to ESG more broadly. Um, but there's also, I think, what is very interesting is it, it has raised another level of um, you know, the fact that, as I said, it's a nationalistic piece of legislation, you're then seeing how the responses are taking place uh, elsewhere. And what that is doing, and I think is very constructive, is it is bringing focus and bringing acceleration in some of the activities. For instance, you know, looking to, to Germany, much of the initial move was very much the how do you get off of that large Russian gas supply um, challenge. Now you're seeing um, you know, a very rapid move from still you know, gas being very important, but there being a much uh, quicker and more um, 
uh, you know, profile discussion around things like green hydrogen, around greater acceleration ultimately towards that um, uh, you know, decarbonised environment that uh, you know, many governments have discussed and set out policies for. And what about clients? What sort of questions are they asking about decarbonisation? So I think the, the key ones that um, uh, have come out are how are policies lining up for different um, countries and regions? What are the levels of activity initiation versus what the, the policy framework that has been prepared? So, i.e., where are we on that journey? And, and obviously, one of the things that we do is to monitor that and to look at what are the policy initiatives but what are then the true actions and how far has that progressed? And it is interesting that having seen really quite a challenge in 22 in some ways where a lot of policy initiatives, but some of them distinctly slowed down or um, you know, took a sort of stance as a back burner for uh, some months, you know, now are very much coming through again. And it's really interesting when you look around the world because we very often get drawn towards obviously what's happened in Ukraine, what it means for Europe, to a degree the US because of the Inflation Reduction Act. But actually, when you look to um, uh, you know, Asia, uh, look to China specifically, and you see the amount of both policy support, but then the actions taking place. And even though there's a slightly longer pathway towards an, a net zero environment, it's extraordinary to see how much of those policy commitments you know, are being maintained and are being hit. So when they decide to take action, they are following through. Mm. Yeah. Okay. a little bit of a plug here, because we've got a lot more on how Fidelity's experts are modelling for various climate scenarios. There's a dedicated episode of the Rich Pickings podcast publishing in the next few days, as well as a decarbonisation special in May from our sister podcast, The Investor's Guide to China. Right, Andrew, long-term trend number two, and this is something very much linked to COVID and the Ukraine war and geopolitical realignments, reindustrialization and reshoring. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, it's really, um, you know, I think two very big drivers that um, one really was pre-COVID. As a consequence of the trade wars, the geopolitical tensions forming uh, between the US and China, that thought process around how can you maintain supply chains um, how can you make sure that um, you know they are in a position that uh, you're not left in a discomfort by the fact that all of a sudden you know your production base is uh, no longer um, open for business? You know that was the starting point, but the reality is that COVID accelerated it enormously because it really did mean that you had inability for supply chains to to operate at a global level because of what was happening um, you know with the lockdowns and different um, uh, you know, approaches from across countries but it also highlighted that you know where we had seen different levels of ability to be resilient and so much of that reshoring is about you know partly a political um, desire to to not be left at risk but also the realities of the sort of just-in-time that was promoted in globalization becoming just-in-case, you know, so that you have that ability to access and you can bring it closer to your borders. But it's not just within border. It's actually that maybe to closer spheres of influence and ability to have um, you know, confidence and comfort. And that's really where you know, one of our conversations around the multipolar world have developed from is because it doesn't mean that all of a sudden supply chains change overnight. It's that you may end up that there's going to be several routes, several fallback cases and several sort of longer term goals, which bring things so that it's shorter supply chains, more control over them by organisations. And that's something that will be 
multi-year in nature. And the risk is that it will be uh, inflationary um, on balance because it's about, again, more demand for materials, resources, bringing them into you know, individual countries where we haven't seen that level of investment. And so you know, what does that capital demand mean in terms of uh, you know, the individual economies? And the risk is it's that uh, you know, inflationary pressures are maintained at a slightly higher level. Um, so that feels like a, a fairly long-term trend there and a lot going on the, uh, beyond the inflationary there is um, diversification which that's a good thing from an investor's point of view. Well it means that in some ways that we may have much more of a desynchronized world both in terms of economic cycles and, and in some ways we're seeing that now you know because the pickup in China clearly is having positive um, ripples across um, other countries but is it having the same global impact and part of that is because we're seeing a change in how you know trade is developing how supply chains are uh, evolving um, and so you know when we look um, uh, forward around that desynchronization will it also have you know for financial markets that actually you end up that diversification does become more real that actually you have a situation where uh, literally countries and regions you know, moving in a, a form and in a relationship which is actually very different in correlated forms to what we've had uh, in the past but I don't think that's an overnight everything shifts I think it's a gradual process and it also is one which you know we, we will observe a little bit in real time but we'll be you know standing sort of at the end of um, uh, you know every 12 24 month period and looking back and saying oh actually you know, that has intensified further. And I think that's one of the things that will be very interesting more as we look to 2024 and beyond than necessarily immediately. So we've got um, an entirely different interest rate regime, an entirely different um, performance in markets, the things that they're reacting to. We've talked about geopolitics. Um, they're very difficult to predict, you know, from one month to the next. How, how do you as an investor position for them over the long term? So I think some of these are about thinking strategically and how they will influence the overall level of returns. And one of the challenges of many of the things we just discussed is that returns will be lower because of some of the inflationary pressures that stay there in terms of cost of capital increases and what that will mean in terms of return on different types of investment. So I, I would generally think that as we look forward, it's considering that um, how, how that's going to overall pull down some of the return profiles. But that's not going to be entirely consistent because in some ways, one of the things that's been most interesting as we observe you know, China not being a never want to grow again, closing down, um, you know, not being part of uh, uh, you know, a broader economic um, environment is that uh, you know, it highlights that they're maintaining a stable cost of capital, that there actually is a relatively strong dynamic for not just sustained recovery, but actually that ability to draw capital into the country. So when we look forward, it's the again, where is the opportunity for a change in environment that means that you know, cost of capital more stable, and also what that means then for return on investment and return on equity. And I think those are, you know, having had a decade where it's very strongly been in favour of the US, that feels to be shifting. We're in the midst of that shift. And as we look forward, then I think one of the parts that will be important is how will that influence um, uh, you know, returns and allocations? And that's why we feel that there is you know, this sort of uh, you know, subtle but then growing shift um, from some of the developed world into the developing and really, you know, 
many countries that will be acting as very developed over time, but um, you know, we classify them as developing, such as China or the Asian region and so on. Big changes there. Now, looking at sectors within the, the region, so moving a little bit beyond the geopolitics, if those trends that we've already talked about play out, um, we've had reports from Fidelity analysts in our Field Notes video series recently covering incredible advances in healthcare, tech, automation, consumer goods. If that pace of change continues, what does the world look like over the next decade? Well, it's very exciting. Um, the, the challenge is you know, what will be global and, and what will be you know, local stroke regional, given what uh, we've discussed about a multipolar world, about you know, trying to create that resilience, but also keeping things closer to home or um, more focused in what you're doing in terms of your advancements. Because again, you know, if we look at some of the tensions that have occurred, obviously a big one is around technology. Well, the interesting part is that we sort of think there's this massive gap um, that not allowing China to develop. Well, the reality is actually they're progressing at an incredible pace. In some ways, it's accelerated that change and their development. And so the gap is much smaller. And actually, could the future be that we see this uh, you know, uh, competition actually create even greater um, you know, speed of development and, and you know, uh, China and other countries uh, you know, having to, to compete, but actually... You know, we've underestimated the speed of investment and um, development that we're seeing there. And you know, that's something that I do think is important. And again, thinking back to my point on what's global, what's not. You know, some elements you'd love to think that in you know, healthcare, very much a shared and the thought process, especially when we think about the consequences of the pandemic that go across the world. But in other areas, obviously looking at you know, the um, focus that uh, has been uh, you know, such a challenge around semiconductors and parts of uh, uh, the technology uh, world that um, that's unlikely to change and could even you know, in- intensify. The-, the challenge as well there, though, is that what does it draw out in terms of political alliances and you know, where capital flows and where it's being shared? And that will become, I think, a very important thing to discern, which is partly a bottom-up understanding companies and that development and the progress they're making but then also what does that mean in the context of what markets they'll have access to you know where that will be shared where it won't be Well, you set out the the big picture of um, of some of these forces that are that are playing in the world. Let's bring it back to your portfolio managers and their positioning. Where are they at the moment when they think about the short term and um, how they're positioned into next year? Look, it is difficult because we really do have um, some very interesting opposing forces at work. We've discussed this before, and I've said that the markets will keep seeking out the soft landing, and that they would do that through the beginning of um, 23 well you know we're uh, you know heading rapidly towards may and they're still doing it um the challenge is that they've got towards the top end of the range in that process now can we go a bit further in some of the uh you know um, key indices that uh, we would follow for that you know whether it be european stock markets u.s stock markets yes definitely but the chances are we're reaching a period where you're going to see some level of um of pullback just because there is a very uncertain environment when you look you know through to that medium term that medium term really is that Will we see central banks, and especially the Fed, maintain policy, not significantly tighter than here, but at these levels? And then what does that mean as we head further into the year and into 2024, and what it means in terms of the risks of how economic activity starts to slow just at the point 
that you um, have some of the other challenges appear, such as, you know, Obviously, credit contraction may be part of that, but then there's the refinancing um, at a corporate and individual level, and how much that is an, uh, you know, an influence as we go into 24. So from an asset allocation point of view, we're very focused on how do we manage the, the tactical around opportunities, and volatility is very low, so can you buy levels of protection at this point? But in the medium term, still being relatively cautious because, again, as we get towards what we think are the upper end of ranges, you, know, you don't really want to be betting on that breaking through. It's actually that circumstances haven't changed that much. The uncertainty is still um, uh, there. And also we see the economic environment maybe staying resilient in the short term, but, but the risks building in the medium term around you know, that credit, um, uh, you know, excess savings levels coming down, and then the refinancing risks building up. So you, we started with a litany and it feels to me like we're ending with a litany as well. Um, I was going to say, hold on to your hats, but maybe it's put on tin hats. Um, th- there is a lot going on, isn't there, Andrew? Yes. And, and I think, again, though, that the part that like to stress is that the markets are seeking out a route to that soft landing and they feel that they've you know, seen a little bit more of a glimmer of that in recent times. The challenge in some ways is that if yields now move up to the top end of their ranges, that could take some of the um, glow out of risk asset um, movement, but not lose in sight that more strategically, some of these question marks and some of the risks in terms of that very narrow landing strip for policy to hit and to create the soft landing actually really does continue too narrow. And so the risk is that, you know, again, it might be pushed out in terms of the economic challenges in terms of growth, but it doesn't mean they've been removed. Right, a narrow landing strip, better pilots uh, are needed. <laughs> and, um, uh, we'll look forward to uh, seeing how that, that, that pans out. Andrew, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you for listening. I mentioned uh, those two special episodes coming up for the Rich Pickings Climate Special. Make sure you're subscribed to the Rich Pickings podcast feed and for the Investor's Guide to China Decarbonisation Special, search for Fidelity Answers in your podcast app. The producer today was Steve Gardner with technical support from Canon Blitz. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.